Let's pray before we dive into the word today. Lord, what a rich history we have as a people, as your people, and what a colorful family tree we possess. Help us today, Lord, to hear your word, to receive your word, and to be changed by your word. Help us to grow and to mature into more of who you have made us to be. Make us more like you. Be with us and speak to us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I just came off of a full week of leading worship for Grace Kids Camp. And while I was singing and dancing and jumping with these children, there was so much jumping this year. I was having a lot of fun, but while I was doing all of that, I was trying to write this message in the afternoons when Kids, kids Camp ended. Uh, I'm gonna tell you right now, I think that Grace Kids Camp had a big impact on the way this message turned out. Um, Grace Kids Camp is essentially our version of a vacation Bible school. And so today I would like you to consider this message a vacation Bible school for adults. It's your turn, okay? I'm gonna tell you a Bible story. This is a story of deceit, of cunning, deception, and trickery. This is a story of rivalry, arch rivalry, a story of betrayal, and a brilliant scheme. This is a story about wrestling, about brotherhood. This is the story of the macho man Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan. (laughs) On April 23rd, 1989, I was a seven-year-old girl and my older brother loved to watch WWF wrestling. And as his little sister, I knew that I was never gonna win the battle royale over the remote control. I was never gonna win that fight, so I watched a lot of wrestling. And I remember this particular match between the legendary Hulk Hogan and his infamous Macho Man Randy Savage. It went like this. The Macho Man was a heel. And for those of you who don't know, heel means bad guy in pro wrestling, okay? So Macho Man was a bad guy, he was a heel, and he was led into the ring by his new manager, bad gal, Scary Sherry. She fought dirty, look at her, she fought dirty. She was not on the good side. She wasn't on the side of truth and justice and the American way. She was a heel for sure, but for every heel, there's a hero. Enter the Hulkster. In the 1980s, Hulk Hogan was the proverbial good guy, everyone's favorite. He was my brother's favorite for sure. And Hulk would strut into the center of the ring with his signature move ripping in half his paper-thin, bright yellow tank top. And then he'd give him one of these, and one of these. And if it seems like I'm indulging my inner 80s child right now, it's because I am. This is VBS for adults. And if you did not grow up in the 80s, I'm sorry for you. It was a magical time. The 80s were bananas. So before the fight could even begin, Macho Man, the heel, was already fighting dirty. He threw a folding chair at an unsuspecting Hulk Hogan who just casually caught it with one hand without even looking. That's the kind of drama we were after in the 80s and the crowd went wild. The fight lasted for a little over 10 minutes and it was glorious. It had every move that made wrestling in the 1980s so magical. There were pile drivers, and clotheslines, and elbow drops, and knee drops, and my brother would practice every one of those moves on me. (laughs) 
At one point, the macho man took his sparkly cape and he threw it over the head of Hulk Hogan. And Hulk Hogan, our massive hero, was rendered completely blind because there was a thin piece of cloth covering his face. Why he couldn't have just taken the cloth off his head hardly mattered to us at the time because it was the 80s and we believed anything in those days. The match ultimately ended when Scary Sherry attacked Hulk from behind, distracting him, giving the macho man the perfect opportunity for a sneak attack. The macho man knocks out the Hulk and is declared the winner by a countout. He wins the match, but only through deception. Deception. He played dirty and he won. This is a story of deceit, of cunning deception and trickery. This is a story of rivalry, arch rivalry, a story of betrayal and a brilliant scheme. This is a story about wrestling, about brotherhood. This is the story of Jacob and Esau. It's the story of Jacob and Esau. These two have been wrestling each other since before they were born, literally, even in the womb. The drama in this family was over the top. Jacob and Esau were twins, born to Isaac and Rebekah, who we heard about last week. And Genesis gives us an account of these twin brothers actually wrestling in the womb. Genesis 25, 21 says that Rebekah became pregnant with twins, but the two children struggled with each other in her womb. That word used for struggle comes from a Hebrew word that means to crack into pieces literally or figuratively, to break, to bruise, to crush, to struggle together. This was no ordinary kicking in the womb. This was violent. And it was serious enough that Rebecca sought help. And so in her agony, she asked the Lord, why is this happening to me? And the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. And from the very beginning, the nations will be rivals, rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other and your older son will serve your younger son. And that's a really unusual distinction. Your older son will serve your younger son? That just wasn't how things were done. That defied the natural order of things. The older son was granted the birthright. That means that he got the larger cut of the inheritance. It was actually two times the inheritance of the second-born son. And apparently, that was still true, even in the case of twins born only seconds apart. Rebecca gave birth to twins, and Genesis 25, 25 tells us that the first one was very red at birth and covered in thick hair like a fur coat, so they named him Esau. Names were significant. They established something factual about you. These names were very practical and very descriptive. Like in the case of Esau, they looked at Esau, he was a super hairy baby, so they named him Harry. Esau means hairy. And Jacob, Jacob was given an even less flattering name. Then the other twin was born with his hand gripping Esau's heel, and so they named him Jacob. Jacob was the name chosen for the second twin because it sounds like the Hebrew words for heel and deceiver. 
He was born with his hand gripping the heel of his twin brother Esau. They wrestled with each other in the womb and it seems from this description that they were vying for position even in birth. The drama in this story is just so over the top. Jacob, in stubborn determination, would not let go of his brother's heel. So they named him heel or deceiver. Jacob, Jacob. Imagine going through life with that name. Hello, my name is Deceiver. What a burden that had to have been for Jacob. Deceiver, liar, and boy would he live up to that name. And so why is it then that Jacob has now become somehow a hero of our faith? Why are we still talking about him today? When Jacob was a man so full of flaws, but his story will show us that God is bigger than our flaws. He desires to change us from the inside out and he will give us a new name and bless us so that we can be a blessing to those around us. The bulk of our story today takes place in Genesis chapter 32. That's on page 28 in the House Bibles if you're using a House Bible. And as you're turning there or following along on the Grace Church app, I wanna always welcome those of you who are out there joining us online. Thank you for choosing to join us. And welcome to all of you, my friends, in the room who were able to make it in person today. I personally wanna thank you for being here because it would be weird to preach to an empty room. So thank you for coming and allowing me to see your face. Thank you for being here. All right, we're diving into the meat of our story, but before we do, I have to give a quick caveat. The story of Jacob is a massive one. Jacob is a hugely important element of our family tree, and we cannot overstate his significance. And I have only about 20 minutes to tell you about a man whose life story spans 25 chapters in the book of Genesis. So I'm hoping that something in this message will spark your curiosity enough to make you want to go and read about the life of Jacob on your own. There's so much packed into the story of Jacob, and today we'll really only be scratching the surface. So far in this series we're calling Family Tree, we've seen that our family history is full of deeply flawed individuals who became unlikely heroes. Heroes like Abraham and his son Isaac. God promised that he would bless all of the nations of the earth through Abraham's family line. But in both Abraham and Isaac, father and son, we see a pattern of fear that leads to panic, that leads to lying in a desperate attempt at self-preservation. In fact, fear, insecurity, panic, and dishonesty all become traits that will mark this family for generations. This is a family that is full of flaws, but God will show them that he is bigger than their flaws. He desires to change this family from the inside out. He'll give them a new name and bless them so that they can be a blessing to those around them. Despite Abraham's obvious flaws, God kept his promises, and the original plan to bless all of the nations through Abraham's descendants, continued on with his grandson, Jacob. 
Now, as we said before, Jacob was born vying for position, grabbing onto his twin brother's heel. He was never content being the second born. And he knew that the fullness of the inheritance belonged to his older twin brother, Esau. And as he grew up, we see in Jacob a young man who is absolutely obsessed with obtaining that inheritance by any means necessary. His brother Esau was a hunter, the outdoorsy type, adventurous, hairy, and rugged. Scripture tells us that Esau was his father's favorite, but Jacob was a homebody with a quiet temperament. He didn't go out hunting. These twins were very different. Jacob was the stay-at-home type, and he was his mother's favorite. We can already see what's happening here. The stage is being set, lines are being drawn, and there are clear divisions within the family, clear favorites. And it won't take long for us to see some of this family's dysfunction come to the surface. Jacob, one day, rugged, hairy Esau returns home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. And twin brother Jacob is making some red lentil stew and some bread. And Esau says that he's starving, so he asks his brother to give him some soup. But Jacob, obsessed with getting his hands on his brother's inheritance, he plays hardball with his brother. He's so quick with his response in Genesis 25, 31. Without skipping a beat, he replied, all right, I'll give you some soup, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. It's as though Jacob had been waiting to catch his brother Esau in a moment of weakness, And as soon as he detected vulnerability, he pounced. But Esau, who says he's dying of starvation, doesn't really care about his birthright in that moment. You know what he cares about is soup. And we have all been there before. Soup is a powerful thing. And at that moment, all that mattered to Esau was soup. He was hungry, so he sold off his inheritance for a bowl of red lentil soup and some bread. Now I wonder... If Henri little brother Jacob teased Esau with that for years. They were so competitive, they were rivals. And now Jacob had the upper hand. And I wonder if he dangled that carrot in front of Esau. And I wonder if the parents caught wind of this sibling rivalry, this act of sibling bribery. Esau, dad's favorite. Jacob, mom's favorite. And we're about to see just how deep this family's dysfunction can go. The grand deception began with the father. Isaac wanted the blessing to go to his favorite son, his eldest. He wanted the full inheritance to go to Esau, but there must have been an awareness within the family of the fierce rivalry between the brothers because Isaac devised a scheme to pass the blessing along to Esau in secret. See, normally the passing down of the inheritance was a momentous occasion with the whole family gathered. It'd be marked by a celebratory meal. It was a very important thing, but Isaac knew the drama that that would cause in his family, so he made a secret deal with his favorite son, Esau. He said, I'm about to die, and what I really want is one good meal. So go and and hunt me some game, favorite son, and make me a delicious meal, then I will pronounce the blessing that belongs to you, my firstborn son, before I die. That was a backdoor deal. Isaac 
was knowingly circumventing the process by cutting out his wife and his younger son, Jacob. Isaac is being shady, but mama was listening at the back door and ain't nobody as slick as mama. She crafted an even grander, even more elaborate scheme to ensure that her favorite son received the full blessing. You can read all about that elaborate scam in Genesis 27. We don't have time to go into that story today, but believe me when I tell you it is over the top, full of drama. Rebecca knew that her husband Isaac was nearly blind, and so she devised a plan to fake out her husband and to disguise Jacob, her favorite, as Esau. The plan worked brilliantly, and Isaac fell for the scam And thinking that he was blessing his favorite son, Esau, he was actually giving the full blessing, the full inheritance to Rebekah's favorite son, Jacob, the deceiver. Rebekah and Jacob played dirty, and they won. They lied. This is a story of deceit, of cunning deception and trickery. This is a story of rivalry, arch rivalry, a story of betrayal and a brilliant scheme. This is a story about wrestling, about brotherhood. And at that moment, brother Esau vowed in his heart that he would kill his scheming twin brother, the thief who had just stolen everything from him. So it was time for Jacob to get out of Dodge. His mother sent him away to live with her family in her homeland, to live with her uncle, or I'm sorry, her brother Laban, and to find a wife. She told him to to lay low for a while, let things cool down for a bit, and then he could return home, hopefully when Esau had forgotten his anger. So Jacob went away to Padan Aram to live with his uncle Laban. Now here's where we're really gonna have to condense the story for the sake of time, but Tim Ayers will be preaching about this aspect of Jacob's life next week. So make sure you come back or tune in for uh, Tim's message on the lives of Rachel and Leah. So for our purposes today, we're just going to push this into a much smaller story. All right. Jacob flees to his mother's homeland to live with his uncle Laban. And it turns out uncle Laban is a dirty, rotten cheat. It runs in the family. He deceives Jacob. He cheats him out of years of his life. Altogether, Jacob spent 20 years working for this dishonest and scheming uncle of his. But after 20 years of indentured servitude, God told Jacob it was finally time to go back home. And he said in Genesis chapter 31, verse 3, return to the land of your father and grandfather and to your relatives there, and I will be with you. Return, God said, to the land of your father and grandfather and to your relatives there. That meant Esau, his scorned older twin brother, the one who had publicly vowed to kill him 20 years earlier. In Genesis chapter 32, we see a Jacob who is consumed by fear. He's certain that his brother still hates him and he fears for his life, but anything is better than slaving away for that cheating uncle of his. And so Jacob does what Jacob does best. He schemes. He makes a plan. He sends messengers on ahead of him to kind of test the waters, so to speak. 
And he tells those messengers this in chapter 32. If you've got your Bibles open, we made it. Chapter 32, verse 4. He says, Give this message to my master, Esau. Humble greetings from your servant, Jacob. Until now, I've been living with Uncle Laban, and now I own cattle and donkeys and flocks of sheep and goats and many servants, both men and women, and I've sent these messengers to inform my Lord of my coming, hoping that you will be friendly to me. He's using language like my master, Esau, and my Lord. He calls himself Esau's humble servant. He's going out of his way to butter his brother up, to show him that he's a changed man, he's humble now, and he poses no threat to his twin brother. But the messengers returned to Jacob, and they reported, we met your brother, we met your brother Esau, and he's already on his way to meet you with an army of 400 men. 400 men. If Jacob was fearful before, he was terrified now. Esau was coming with an army of 400 men, a show of force for certain. Jacob is sure that vengeance will be swift and brutal. Genesis 32, 7 says Jacob was terrified at the news. He divided his household along with the flocks and herds of camels into two groups. And he thought if Esau meets one group and attacks it, perhaps the other group can escape. He's preparing for the worst. But he does something remarkable in the next verse. Even though he is currently freaking out, he stops planning his next move just for a moment. He stops scheming just long enough to pray. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my grandfather Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, you told me Return to your own land and to your relatives, and you promised me I will treat you kindly. Jump down to verse 11. Oh Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I am afraid that he's coming to attack me along with my wives and children, but you promised me I surely will treat you kindly and I will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sands along the seashore. Too many to count. Jacob says, You promised me. What does he do in his moment of extreme worry? He remembers God's promises. He doesn't retreat. He doesn't run away from his brother in fear. No. He repeats the promises of God. And in repeating those promises, he is standing on the promises of God. You told me to return home, and you promised that you would be with me. You promised. Jacob clings tightly to the promises of God. He holds on in faith. Despite his fear, he stays on the path that will lead him directly to his brother. Verse 13 says he stayed where he was for the night and you know that the wheels in his head had to have been turning because he woke up the next morning with a new plan. Verse 20, Jacob thought, I'll try to appease him by sending gifts ahead of me and when I see him in person, maybe he will be friendly to me. So the gifts were sent on ahead while Jacob himself spent that night in the camp. It was a long and sleepless night But for our hero Jacob, it was a pivotal night. This is a story about wrestling. 
It's a story about coming face to face with your worst flaws. It's a story about facing who you are and who you have been. This is a story about wrestling with a God who is bigger than our flaws, a God who desires to change us from the inside out, a God who will give us a new name and welcome us home and bless us so that we can be a blessing to those around us. Jacob was all alone in the camp that night. And we're told in chapter 32, verse 24, that a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. And when the man saw that he could not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and he wrenched it out of its socket. The man said, let me go, for dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name, the man replied. And then he blessed Jacob there. And Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. Jacob refused to let go. Jacob, who held on to his brother's heel at birth. Jacob, who wrestled with his brother in the womb, now wrestled with the divine and would not let go. He held on. He wouldn't let go. The prophet Hosea said, even in the womb, Jacob struggled with his brother. And when he became a man, he even fought with God. Yes, he wrestled the angel and won. He wept and pleaded for a blessing from him. This encounter that Jacob has with the angel is the defining moment of Jacob's life. The angel changes his name but not before making him say it out loud one last time. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, deceiver, schemer, yeah. Liar, heel, thief, cheater. He spoke his name out loud to the divine, the very admission of his name and admission of his deepest flaws. He's facing who he has been. But God was bigger than Jacob's flaws. He desired to change Jacob from the inside out. He desired to give Jacob a new name. No longer would he be called deceiver. He was to be called Israel, a combination of the Hebrew words, get this, for wrestle and God. The name Israel depicts the concept of wrestling with or clinging firmly to God, holding on to him and overcoming through him, Israel. It's as though God is saying that apart from me, you will continue to deceive and be deceived. Apart from me, you will continue to be Jacob, but cling to me and you will be Israel. 
Hold on to me and you will be blessed. Hold on to me and you will overcome. Hold on to me and don't let go and I will use you to bless every nation on earth. But you must hold on to me. Hold on to me. Jacob is no longer Jacob. He wrestled with God through the night and he emerged a new man with a new name and a new stride. Now watch what happens here. His circumstances haven't changed. They haven't changed. As far as he's concerned, his brother still wants to kill him. He's being hunted down by an army of 400 men. His family is still in danger. And if anything, his outward circumstances only appear to have gotten worse. He's exhausted from wrestling all night. And he's limping from a dislocated hip, which was painful, no doubt. But something changed in his inner man. There's a boldness that wasn't there before this encounter with the angel. For the first time, he stops cowering behind the caravan and he puts himself out front. He's bold. He sees his brother coming from a distance and he doesn't run in fear. He bows. He surrenders. He bows with the kind of bow that was only reserved for royalty. No longer is he Jacob heel grabber. Now he bows. No longer is he Jacob deceiver, obsessed with obtaining a blessing by any means necessary. Now he blesses. He gives gifts to Esau. And what about Esau? To me, Genesis 33 verse 4 is one of the most beautiful images in all of scripture. And if your Bible is open, you can look there. Genesis 33, 4. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they both wept. Gone was the desire for revenge. Gone was the petty rivalry between twin brothers. Gone was the animosity. Gone was the fear. Only love remained. There was only love. And if that image, the image of seeing from a distance and running to and embracing sounds familiar, it's because it's the same imagery that Jesus uses in his parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. The parable that tells us the story of an estranged son who returns home to his father, broken, repentant, a changed man. Jesus said, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Jesus knew the Jacob story and he adapted it in his parable of the prodigal son. Jesus knew that the Jacob story is really our story. It's all of our story you and me and every ancestor before us. This is the story of our family tree. The story of Jacob is our story. It's a story about family and forgiveness, redemption and restitution. It's a story about wrestling with God and holding on to his promises. That is my story. I have 
wrestled with God. Have you wrestled with God? Just like Jacob, our story tells of the power of God to heal broken relationships and to soften hard hearts. In Jacob's story, we see our own flaws on full display. But even more than that, we see a God who is bigger than our flaws, who desires to change us from the inside out, who will give us a new name, and who promises to bless us so that we can be a blessing to those around us. Through Jesus, each one of us has been given a new name. We are sons and we are daughters of our loving Father who runs to us and throws his arms around us and kisses us and welcomes us home. This is our heritage. This is our story. This is our Father welcoming us with open arms. This is the story of our homecoming. In a moment, we'll be taking communion together as a family. The elements are at the doors. If you didn't grab one on your way in, you could grab one now. And if you're at home, I encourage you to grab something that represents the body of our Lord, a piece of bread, a cracker, something that represents the body of Christ that was broken on the cross in the greatest act of love and forgiveness that the world has ever seen. Through his death on the cross, he saw us when we were still afar off. He saw us from a distance and he ran to us. And find something, if you're at home, that represents his blood, the blood of our new name. With his own blood, he has washed us and made us his own. We belong to him. By his blood, he calls us by our new name. And he throws his arms around us. And he kisses us and he welcomes us home. The song you're about to hear is a song of confession. Listen to these words as you hold these symbols of Christ's body and blood in your hands. Listen to these words and make this confession your own. As they play this next song, take this time to confess like Jacob did when he told the angel his name. There's nothing you can tell your father God that he does not already know. He knows you. He sees you. Maybe you have wrestled with him. But just know that as you're confessing within your heart, whatever it is, Jesus already dealt with it on the cross out of his love for you. We take communion to remind us of his ultimate sacrifice of love and the victory he won over every sin, the victory he won over every hurt, the victory he won over death itself. So whenever you feel ready during this closing song, take and eat the symbol of his body which was broken for you. And drink the cup, a symbol of his blood that was poured out for the remission of sins. Do this and remember. Do this and remember him. Do this and remember his promises and his love for you. Do this and hold on to him. 
hold on to him. Lord, we remember and we stand on your promises. And if we don't know what those promises are, Lord, help us to dig into your word because they're right there. They're right there for the taking. Your promises to be with us wherever we go. Your promises to be with us all of our days. Your promise, Lord, to give us boldness when we need boldness and comfort, when we need comfort and wisdom, when we need wisdom. Your promises that you are God, our provider. Your promises that you are God, our loving Father. You don't walk, you run. And you have run to each one of us. And for someone in this room who may still be afar off, you are running to them right now. God, throw your arms around them. Kiss them, Lord, and welcome them home. What a good father you are. What a good father you are. We take communion now, and we remember. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us slash hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.